You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Him and introduce his wife, but he's come up from Cedar Rapids. Cedar Rapids, right. You're shaking your head. I did get the name right, didn't I? Paul Rathke. Yeah, okay. yeah. no, I'm not shaking my head. I'm just shaking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Thank you. The whole morning. Man, how far into the morning do I get to go? Is that it? <laughs> well, well, I uh, do want to introduce my wife, Abby. We were here last, uh, was it not last January, the one before that we came up. Uh, I think it was when Hannah's uh, dad had passed away and Mike called me and brought us up here on a much more wintry day, although I thought maybe this time of March it wouldn't be so wintry, but it is Minnesota, so... Iowa too. So we live in Cedar Rapids. We've been there for about 11 years and and the Croakers, we go back a long ways with those folks back when they lived in Clearwater, Kansas and had their little bed and breakfast there and Mike was a pilot and uh, kind of a key man in our church, did a lot of behind the scenes things. So we just uh, praise God for how the Lord has brought him along and brought him to you folks and just so, so neat to see the the things that God is doing up here in Leroy and, and through Leroy and, and uh, just talking to Mike about George and how God has flown a satellite out to, was it Austin, Texas, I think is where, is that where he is? Yeah, and it's just kind of kind of neat because that was sort of George's sweet spot was being in that particular type of work. And so we're just excited to see what God is doing. Well, as I, I just heard a, a prayer request earlier about our our government in Minnesota is not the only place that's got uh, ridiculous politicians. Um, it's, you know, one of many, actually. And, and we can look at this and we can just think, boy, when you see a power grab going on in government, uh, it, it really should offend us when you think about it. Uh, and and if, if, if that power grab was going to negatively affect us, you kind of feel like, isn't there something we should do? I mean, do we just sit here? and just kind of put up with it. You know, the Founding Fathers, they revolted against the whole uh, misuse of power that that was going on in in their day, and had things not been so extreme on the part of King George, they may well have said, well, we'll just continue to drink tea and speak British, but we all know that wasn't meant to be. I guess my question for us, have, have we seen a power grab in recent days? I think we probably all know we have, and I'm reminded of, of the man who led the country well. He was a, he was a very carnal leader, uh, a very uh, fleshly man in many ways, and yet uh, under his watch, the nation prospered. And then a new leader came along, and things changed. Somehow, uh, this new guy was, was seizing control in a way that should not have been done, through intrigue, through uh, manipulation, murder. This man was rising to power, and I know you might think you know who I'm talking about. Um, we're, we're not going to go there exactly today, although we could, I suppose, but instead I want to ask you to turn to the book of Judges. That's where we're going to go, and we're going to look at what was going on in Judges chapter 9, and as you're going there, I just want to uh, kind of give a little backdrop on the book of Judges for those who maybe haven't read it lately. Uh, you know, you look at how God built the nation of Israel. He called them out of Egypt where there were slaves, and they're 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And, and God said, I'm going to be your king. 
So at this point in time, they didn't have kings in Israel. They had judges. They were people that God raised up periodically to lead God's people as they, they would get into trouble because of their own sin, and the judge would rise up and lead them in repentance and lead them in, in military victories and, and just all the neat things that God was doing. So now we come to another judge, and, and uh, we go to Judges chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. We're going to read verses uh, 1 through 6 for starters here. Uh, Judges 9, beginning with verse 1. Now Abimelech, the son of Jerbal, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam would rule over you, or that one would rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words in his behalf, in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, Well, he is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of baal Bereth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and, and, all, and all Beth Milo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak, of the pillar at Shechem. So we, we may not recognize the name Jeroboam because we do know that he went by a different name. And we're going to talk about that different name that he went by. Gideon. Gideon was his name. You all know Gideon the judge, if you remember the, the story. He was an amazing judge. He, he led Israel a few generations before King Saul became the anointed king of Israel. Uh, Gideon was open to hearing from God. And he was wise enough, in a way, to test the spirits. You know, God told him, I want you to lead my people in battle. He said, well, how about if I put a fleece out, and if it's dry and the ground is wet, then that's a go-ahead. And the next day, how about, how about we do just the opposite, and the fleece should be wet and the ground is dry, or whatever, I just, opposite of what I just said, and, and, and then we'll be a go-ahead. So he was really wanting to see what, is, what does God want us to do. So in many ways, he was, he was a wise man. He was a man who wanted to hear from God. He, wa- he was a man who wanted to follow God's lead as he led God's people. And God brought about great deliverance from this man. He was a faithful man in many ways, but he was also a a flawed man, if you know his story. So Israel wanted to make this Gideon, Jeroboam, they wanted to make him king because he was such a successful leader, such a successful judge. If you go back to chapter 8, verse 23, when they came to him and, and said, hey, here's the deal, we want you to be the king, uh, the Bible says in verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. So you see a faithful guy here. You know, he's, he's wanting to stay the line. God said he's going to be the king, not me. Let's keep it that way. And yet, this faithful guy also was a flawed man. And this next part of the story is kind of confusing to me. Read in verse 27 that for whatever reason, Gideon made an ephod. And he put it in his city in Oprah, and all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Now, we know of an ephod. If you know the Old Testament law, it was what the the priest wore to try to discern God's will and, and, and use that as a part of his holy vestments. Well, that's not what apparently what Jeroboam or Gideon made. It was actually just an idol. I don't know why it calls it an ephod, because he made it out of gold. Maybe it looked like a vest or something. We don't know. 
but he apparently was making an idol for them. Uh, and, and why he made this is very unclear. It's like, well, were you trying to give the representative of God to them, or, or what, what exactly was your point? And the Bible doesn't tell us, so we don't want to speculate much, but uh, it's particularly weird when you think, here's a guy that just got done saying something so noble. No, I don't want to be your king. God is your king, but here's an idol. <laughs> you know, you kind of go, I, you know, I'm a little confused about that. And, of course, Judges is full of things like that where you look at it and you go, wow, that's weird. Uh, so Gideon, he was on board with God's plan in a lot of ways, but he was also a fleshly man in a lot of ways. And we learn in the scripture that we just read that he had a concubine. And the concubine bore him a son whose name was Abimelech. Now that word Abimelech comes up in the Old Testament because it's what they called the leaders of the Philistine area and the Gerarian area. It just means my father is the king. That was a title, kind of like Pharaoh or president. It was a title back in Genesis. But when we get to the book of Joshua, and Judges, I should say, it's being treated as a, as a name. And so he, he, he had the name Abimelech, my father is king. And then the Bible goes on to tell us just how fleshly Gideon was. It says that he had many wives who bore him 70 sons, according to chapter 8, verse 30. So he has a concubine, he's got a bunch of wives, and he's got 70 sons. So it's safe to say that Gideon was a flawed man. In spite of some of his good traits, he, he was a flawed man. And we see that theme a lot in Scripture, right? Especially in the book of Judges. We read that Gideon died after 40 years of successfully leading Israel, judging Israel. Chapter 8, 28, uh, verse uh, 28 says the land had rest for 40 years during the days of Gideon. And, of course, we all know the prevalent theme of the book of Judges, or you, you should if you don't. And the prevalent theme, though it's only repeated a few times in the book, it says that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in his own eyes. And you see that pop up about three times. And that really defines the way God's people are acting in the book of Judges. And so we get to the story right after Gideon dies. We meet the people of God, chapter 8, verse 33. Right after Gideon dies, right after he dies, verse 33, the people of Israel turned again and they whored after the Baals, which were idols, and, after, uh, and they made Baal Berith their god, which is some sort of a statue. Verse 34, the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their god, obviously. Verse 35, and they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done for Israel. I find that kind of a curious thing. When God's people forget about God, they also misuse the leaders God has raised up to bless them with. Again and again, that goes on scripturally, but also it can happen in churches, and it's a, it's a very sorry statement. So Gideon, we had 70 sons by various wives, and yet the focus is not on all those other sons or those other wives. The focus just goes in on this one concubine and her son, a guy named Abimelech. It stands out to me that though Gideon had 70 sons by all these wives, this woman was not called a wife, at least not right here she wasn't. She was called a concubine, which sort of sets her in a little different category. I'm not sure how that works exactly. If you've got more than one, it seems like you're already a concubine guy. But, you know, whatever the case, he, he had 70 wives in this concubine. And, and the son, Abimelech, is not even included in the 70 sons that are highlighted in chapter 8, verse 30. So you've got these 70 sons by the wives, and you've got this other guy who's a son by the concubine. And you go, wow, okay. When I read something like that, and this is maybe kind of a Bible study tool 
that maybe you already use. When you read something that's weird in the Bible and you kind of go, that's a head-scratcher, that's God's way of saying, why don't you read that again? Why don't you study that? Why don't you think about that? Because there's something going on here. And when I do something that seems strange, which God always does something that seems strange to our limited minds, it's God's way of saying, I, I want you to notice this. Notice this. This is, this is important. So the Bible throws that at us. And, it, and, and when I look at that, I find myself thinking, what is going on? Was there, was there discord between Abimelech and the 70 half-brothers? You know, maybe they looked down on him. After all, he was the son of the concubine where they were sons of the wives. Certainly that's a possibility. The Bible doesn't answer the question, but it certainly is a possibility, which might explain his brutal actions against his 70 brothers that we just read about a moment ago, killing them all. And also remember that name Abimelech. We said it means, remember, my father is king. My father is king. That's the name that he was given by Gideon. And I find myself, again, just asking the question, was there some sort of planning and posturing going on? Maybe this concubine, and again, we don't know. I can't make a sermon out of it, but I just kind of floated out there to think about. Did this concubine think to herself, I want my son to have a name that stands out because he's special. He's my son. So I'm going to give him the name, my father is king, because I want this kid to stand out. He's not just some son of a concubine, something special about him. And we don't know. We can't know exactly, but we can know, we can know some things. We can know that this son of Gideon's concubine does some pretty monstrous things. He acts like somebody who, who apparently sees himself as the heir apparent to the throne. He sees himself as a, rather he sees himself going after the throne that his father Gideon refused to take. Remember, Gideon said, no, I don't want to be the king. God is your king, no human. And yet here's the son of the judge. He's got this audacious name, my father is king. Think about the psychology of that. No, his father was not king. Well, maybe something was going on. Again, is it speculative? Yeah, except where we look at what he does. See, whatever else drove Abimelech's actions, he certainly was an ambitious critter. Notice, notice where he goes. Notice what he says to the people he goes to. Look at chapter 9, verses 1 and 2 again. He goes to his mother's, that's the concubine, he goes to his mother's clan, his mother the concubine, he goes to her clan, and he writes a little campaign script. He says, okay, mom, I want you to say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, you know, this is my campaign script. You know, we're going to do some, some phone soliciting. We're, you know how you get those calls on your cell phone, and you change your number, and you hit block, and they find some other way, and it looks like Milt's calling you up, but it turns out to be somebody soliciting from Philippines trying to get you to vote. For, you know, it's just crazy. So they were doing that. That's exactly what, what was going on with, with uh, Abimelech. Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and then he writes this little, little script, which is just right out of the playbook of politicians today, right? Two points in this script. First point, chapter 2. Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? That's point one in the script. Second part of the script. Remember also, I am bone, I am your bone and your flesh. See, these are people in his region. So in other words, what he's saying is, one leader with ultimate power is better than 70 leaders with shared power. That's the first part of his campaign script. And the second part of his campaign script is, hey, I'm your relative. You got something to gain if you put me in power. Because, hey, our little circle here in this little area called Shechem, we're going to be big stuff if you put me in the boss. 
And remember, this nation wasn't founded to have one ruler except for God. But my father, the king, or Abimelech, as he went by, eh, he's thinking, no, I, I think we can do something with this. We can do something with this. So the campaign, of course, was a success, at least locally. Verses 3 and 4. His mother's relatives spoke all these words on behalf, on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. So they're out talking, out knocking on doors, out doing the campaign, got the signs, the bumper stickers or chariot stickers or whatever they used. In the, anyway, he, he went out and, and he uh, got everybody listening, all these words spoken in, in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem. And the Bible says that their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech. For they said, well, he is our brother. So they're already thinking, you know, if we have the guy from our neck of the woods running the country, that's going to be pretty good. That's our sweet spot. We, yeah, this is, this is a good idea. You know, I think we already realized politics is dirty business, right? Hey, we're getting into the cycle again, aren't we? Oh, boy, how exciting. Ridiculous. Uh, but here we are. We've got this Abimelech for King campaign. It's gaining ground in the family, and then it's kind of catching on in the, the county and the region, so to speak. And, and, and then they start a little more outreach, and they, they bring in some, some for hire thugs. The Bible goes on to tell us that uh, they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal Barith, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who, fire, who followed him. So now he's, he's hiring thugs to go out and do the canvassing for him, getting these worthless, reckless fellows. Are there any worthless, reckless fellows that do campaigning? Oh, my. We could go on, couldn't we? We could have Q&A time and start calling names. We won't do that today. Um, we have seen dirty politics in America. And I'm pretty sure that just about every election we've ever had, almost all the way through, has had a, a great deal of dirty politics. It didn't just start in this last couple of cycles, really. This is a long-standing history because you've got human hearts always doing what human hearts do. I'm pretty sure every election has had more than its share of ambitious power seekers whose handlers know how to work the crowd, right? We see that again and again. So these workless and reckless fellows, they can accomplish a lot because they don't have a conscience. They are worthless. They are reckless. And they don't care who gets hurt. long as I get paid, I really don't care. Because I got an agenda and I got a paycheck. And so we read here, empowered by his growing popularity, the family, the region, the worthless, reckless fellows, Abimelech, whose name is Father is King, he lives out this, ambitious, this ambition that his name apparently gave him. And he's probably thinking to himself, hey, the son of the king would certainly be the heir apparent, right? If, 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 if Gideon, in fact, had been the king, it would seem... Very logical that the heir apparent would be one of his sons, one of his 70-plus sons. And Abimelech decides, well, yeah, he wasn't technically the king, but my name is my father the king. So I'm going to ride in on that title and in on my father's successes. It's a curious side note here, by the way. Uh, and I was just doing a little math, and I'm not very good at math, but this doesn't add up very well for me. Gideon had 70 sons by his wives. And he also had Abimelech by his concubine. Well, that 70 plus 1 carry the... Yeah, that equals 71. Right away, you kind of go, well, that's a curious thing. I'm not sure how that works mathematically. If you include Abimelech, the Gideon apparently had 71 sons. And perhaps Abimelech was never counted as a son, and 
If that's the case, it would have made it easier for him to wipe out the other 70. Again, speculation, yes, speculation. We don't know the exact psychology of it, but we do know what he did. It might help us understand what he did. There's another curious side note here, too, by the way. Who was Israel's first king, as you understand Scripture? Who was their very first king? Obviously God. But who was their first human king? It was Saul. It was Saul. We know that. So it was King Saul. And yet we read in verse 6, here we are hundreds of years, probably at least 120 or more years before Saul. And we read in verse 6 that all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Belmilo, and they went and they made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar of Shechem. They kind of jumped out at me. I'm like, really? Well, that's kind of interesting because I thought Saul was the first king. What's going on here? It's another one of those what's going on here moments where you read scripture and you go, let me, let me pause on that. Something's going on here. Now, Abimelech was not the king of Israel. And in fact, he wasn't really even the king of this little region. At best, he could be described as maybe some kind of a tribal chieftain. But the local yokels decided they'd call him king. And Abimelech, well, he was all for it. You see, ambition is very blinding. The rise to power is blinding. I always tell my wife with these politicians, oh, he's a good guy, and she's a good... It's like, you know, how many times have they sold their soul to get to the level they're at? I'm not saying that everybody who reaches a high level in politics hasn't, has sold their soul, but it sure seems like... <laughs> I haven't found any that haven't. Let's just put it that way. And, and so here we are again, a man who sold his soul. Knowing what we know about blind ambition for power... We can venture to suggest that Abimelech had higher aspirations just being, than just being a little regional king, a little tribal chieftain. I mean, he knew what it was. He knew he really wasn't the king of Israel. He knew he was just a little local tribal chieftain in an area that probably wasn't much populated more than, than this county. There just weren't that many people. But he, he felt the power, and he was loving on all that power. And, and so here he is, Gideon, Abimelech's father, had been successful judging all of Israel. And even though Gideon made it clear that I don't want to be the king, Abimelech decided that, no, actually, I do want to be the king. God is not doing the job right. I want to do this. So Abimelech begins his campaign. As we just talked about, he talks himself up. Chapters, or verse, uh, verses 1 and 2, he talks himself up. And then he gets the family all talking him up, verses 3 and 4. Finally, he, he eliminates the competition, we read in verse 5. And so he becomes the king of the region. And yet, remember, his father had judged the whole nation, not just the region. Abimelech's name meant my father the king, so he's going the distance. Why not? Why just be the king of Shechem when everybody's waiting for me to rise into power? Scripture doesn't say that was exactly his end game, but when you look at what he's doing, it looks like that's his end game. All we know is what we can read, but we can speculate what the heart was looking like that took in that direction, and I think we're hitting it. And the campaign was gaining momentum, except for one little detail. As the campaign's gaining momentum and, and Abimelech's going, man, I, I got the county, I got the state, next it's going to be the region and the Midwest, and then it's going to be the... I mean, you could just see that that would be what he's doing. It seems like that for sure, except... One little detail, one little detail was missed. If I can find my place in my sermon, I'll know what that detail is. 
uh, he, he, was, uh, he was well on his way. He counted 70 sons of Gideon. Somehow he miscounted and killed 69 sons, or maybe Gideon had 71 sons besides Abimelech. Hmm. We read in chapter 9, verse 5, that, that after Abimelech killed the 70 sons of Gideon, that Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, or Gideon, was left, for he hid himself. Well, so there's another son. You got, you got the 70 that were killed. You got Abimelech, the killer. And now you got Jotham, this other guy. And you're kind of going... The numbers, I, the numbers are messing with my head here. And again, when, when there's a little thing like that in Scripture, it's not to make you kind of, make you kind of go, well, it, it's not consistent, forget it. No, it's God saying, I want you to notice this. This is a standout thing here. I want you to notice this. You see, those little details are kind of like termites. Uh, we, our house is 100 years old, and there's a, there's a beam in the basement that obviously was termite food at some point in the past. The beam has been separated. It's just hanging there by itself, and it's, it's got some chews in it, but the termites are gone. They haven't been back. But, you know, termites, they can trash a house. If you've ever had them or Carpenter Ranch, you know a little bitty things wipe the place out. I'm reminded of spring of 1940, Adolf Hitler. He was all ready to annihilate 340,000 Allied troops in this massive attack on Dunkirk, France. In fact, there's a movie called Dunkirk that uh, kind of highlights all that. It's a victory. If he would have taken out all those troops that were on the coast of France, he would have gone across the um, uh, English Channel, and he'd have taken England by ground, which was the only way you could take it. You can't take it by air. He would have, he would have successfully taken England, and that would have been it. But for whatever reason, some little detail, he decided, ah, let's wait three days. He's told his generals, stand down for three days. I suppose he figured we got this one. This is just a walkthrough. So let's tool up. Let's have a little, little party, smoke a cigar and relax, and, and then we'll move on in and we'll, we'll kill England. And during those three days, of course, the tides of the war changed because the, the British were able to get off the beach because civilians came and, and with their boats and got them off there. And just the whole story is amazing. One little detail missed, and the whole tide of the war began to turn, not rapidly, but they never got to England. Had they gotten to England, that would have been it. That would have been it. Kind of like Haman, if you remember the story of Haman in the book of Esther. One little detail. Remember, Haman was preparing to eliminate the Jews. We're all set to do that. It's going to happen. And, and yet there was one little detail. One little detail that he never noticed. It happened when the king, Ahasuerus, was having a sleepless night. So he's just like, okay. I can't sleep tonight. Let's read about the day-to-day events of town. Let's read about the obituaries. Let's look at the funnies. Let's, let's hear all the stuff that's been going on in our little town today. Boring, yawn, it'll put me to sleep. Well, one story comes up with this Mordecai who delivered the king from being assassinated. He goes, did we ever do anything for Mordecai? No, we didn't. So the next day, you know what happens. Haman, the guy that's all planning on wiping out Israel or wiping out the Jews, He's now leading his archenemy Mordecai, saying, this is what the king does to those he wishes to honor, and just humiliating the guy. One little detail. See, Mordecai uh, was just an invisible guy that, that Haman was going to wipe out, and nobody would have noticed, except one little detail. See, blind human ambition waits for the prime opportunity and then launches the takeover plan, but then there's God. But then there's God. See, that's why I'm making much of all these little things where God says something that seems inconsistent. That's because God's saying, don't miss 
the fact that I'm here. See, he doesn't just show up in some lucky twist of fate and magically everything falls together. No, 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 no. God's at work, always at work behind the scenes, allowing the blindly, selfishly ambitious to hang themselves on their own gallows, tripping over their own selfishly ambitious pride. And so we have the youngest son of Gideon. Somehow, he wasn't even on on Abimelech's roster. He either didn't know he existed, or he thought, oh, what's that stupid kid? He's nothing. Jotham, he's nobody. I'm not worried about him. But this youngest son of Jotham was no fool. And so he comes, and he's got a story. And this guy's a, he's a good storyteller. He does an incredible story. There stood Jotham. Notice where he's delivering his speech. Look at verse 7 of Judges chapter 9. He's on Mount Gerizim. Now, I looked at that mountain for a second. I thought, where have I heard of that mountain before? If you go back into the books of the law, when they were getting ready to come into the promised land, Moses said, there's Mount Gerizim, you'll deliver the blessings. There's Mount Ebal, you'll lay out the curses. Gerizim is where I'm going to tell you my blessings. Mount Ebal is where I'm going to tell you the curses. And that's exactly what they did on that mountain hundreds of years earlier when they first came across the land, came across the Jordan into the land. And so here's Jotham on that mountain, on the mountain of blessing, the mountain that Moses had laid out for them for the place to deliver blessing, right smack in the middle of Abimelech's little fiefdom, by the way. Remember, Abimelech was taking over Shechem and getting ready to move on. So that's, that's the heartland, which I looked at Israel, and it's kind of like geographically right in the middle of the, the land block called Israel. Not exactly, maybe, but pretty close to right smack in the middle. A good place to take over the whole country, by the way, is from the heartland. Move out from there. Well, here's, here's Jotham in the heartland. There he stood on Inauguration Day when Abimelech's, you know, taking the scepter, and I'm going to move forward and seize the whole country. Look at chapter, seven, chapter 9, verses 7 through 9. When it was told to Jotham what was going on, he went and he stood on top of Mount Gerizim, And he cried aloud, and he said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. And then he tells this story. He says, The the trees once went out to anoint a king over them. And they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? The olive tree is a common tree in the region, useful tree. We all like our olive oil and so on. And in Jotham's parable, He presents the olive tree as being far too noble of a tree, too noble to give up its calling. I'm here to make oil, not to wave over other trees. I'm too noble for that. God wants me to do this. So they move on, verses 10 and 11 in the parable of the trees. The trees said to the fig tree, you come reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go sway over the trees? And fig tree, that's common to the area as well. Fruitful, delicious. I like figs, you know, fig newtons. Uh, Much more noble, though. Like the olive tree, the fig tree said, I I got a higher calling. I make delicious fruit. Why would I I come and wave over you people? What what is that? And so Jotham takes them in this parable from the sublime to the ridiculous with what he says next in his little story. 12 and 13, the tree said to the vine, you come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go sway over the trees? Think about that. What's crazy about that? 
the, the idea that a tall tree would subject itself to a spindly little vine. I mean, come on. Though, though the idea <coughs> of rising to such prominence over everything, that might seem like a worthy ambition for the vine, but the vine said, no, 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 no. I have a much higher calling. I'm here to make grapes and do what grapes do. Don't bother me with your ambitions. I don't need that. So here's where the story really shows how unhinged the people of God had become by this point. Verse 14. Then all the trees said to the bramble, to the leafy spurge. You know what that is. You hate that stuff. I know you do. Uh, and, and they said to the, to, the, to the bramble, you come and reign over us. Now, what's ridiculous about that? <laughs> well, the bramble in the story doesn't talk about I have a noble purpose. You know, I don't make fruit. I don't make wine. It just confronts them with just this is how out there you guys really are. Verse 15, the bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. Now, think about that. Really? A tree getting underneath a, a bramble? A weed? How much shade can a tree get from a bramble, right? <laughs> Zip, zilch, none. What a poke in the eye Jotham's given these guys. Their little chieftain named Abimelech. He's just a bramble, guys. He's good for maybe a quick smoky fire, but nothing going on there. You don't want to come under that guy. The word picture Jotham is making is that God's people had reached such a low place spiritually They'd settle for something absolutely worthless for a king because we want things our way. Do we see anything like that in the United States of America at times? Not always, but there are things going on, aren't there? The word picture, what, what are you going after that stuff for? In Jotham's parable, a bramble is nothing to a tree. In the same way, a human king it's nothing for God's people. He's got nothing to offer. He's as worthless as a bramble is to a stately fruit-bearing tree. A bramble goes nothing. You see, that's what happens when human ambition drives people to exchange God for something else. To exchange God for something else. We wind up with a bramble or a bundle of brambles. Big deal. That's a lot of bees. You don't wind up with anything good. The outcome of Abimelech's ambitious kuliat is that he and his followers all die. I'd love to be able to take time and, and go into that passage as well, but we won't this morning other than to say that everything Abimelech uh, was told was going to happen, everything Jotham said was going to come upon them, does. First, we know that Abimelech gets killed by the people of Shechem because after about three years, they'd had enough of this guy. See, that's the way ambitious people are. They use others, and others are happy to be used if they can get something out of it. He is our flesh, after all. But after about three years, they're like, you know what, I'm sick of this guy, so they killed him. And then they got killed. You know, it just doesn't work. That's kind of the devil's kingdom. It's very self-contradictory and self-defeating and self-destructive. But the devil keeps doing what he does, and selfishly ambitious people line up with that, and it never works. What are we supposed to do with this event from history? Not just a fine lesson from some historical event. I hope it's not that. 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that these things happened to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction. That includes us, on whom the end of the age has come. And here's the point that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, if anyone who thinks that he stands... 
take heed, lest he fall. See, Abimelech had no idea he was up against God. In his world, hey, I want it my way, so get out of my way. And that's all he could see. But then there's God. (laughs) But then there's God. So we look at this. We live in a political mess. And ever since the fall of man, we've lived in a political mess. So I'm not making a contemporary shot at our current leaders. Because we've always been in a mess. Sometimes it's less messy. Sometimes it's more messy. But it's a mess. It just is. It's just a mess. But then there's God. Not Joe Biden. Not Donald Trump. Not everything in between. Now, there are times we've got to have a speak out, that's for sure. Like Jotham, with his talk about trees looking to brambles for leadership, sometimes you, sometimes you do step up, you get on the school board, you get on the county board of supervisors, you get on the whatever, and you get involved. Sometimes you do that. But there's no need to fear in that. You see, brambles, <laughs> brambles are never a worry. Never. They'll never run anything. This pathetic little wannabe king of Bimelech is nothing. No matter how much the media of his day pushed him, no matter how much the winds of change seemed to blow to empower him, you hear that's kind of the message for today, isn't it? No matter how much the media pushes this agenda, this junk on us, it's brambles. Don't be afraid of it. It's nothing. This little wannabe power seeker named Abimelech, he died. He was killed by the people he was using because they were done with him. Aren't you excited about what's coming soon for us when we think about the big picture? What's coming soon for us? I'm not talking about the next election cycle, by the way. Without a doubt, we're going to wind up with a very flawed leader, no matter who it is. I may love the person, I may despise them. Either way, they're a mess. If they follow Jesus, they're less of a mess, but they're still prone to that, you know, what's it, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So we're, we're, we're going to get somebody who's flawed and ambitious. It's just the way it is, because that's not where our hope lies. We don't have to be afraid of that. We don't have to be controlled by that. We don't have to sit back and go, well, then I'm not going to do anything because God's God. Well, there are times in this wonderful country where we can do stuff. But the best thing we, we've got to remember is we're not up against those people. They're not, they're not going to win. They may have the day at times, and they do drive us crazy with their politics, as as somebody shared earlier, not just Minnesota. It's everywhere. And yet, they're brambles. They're just brambles. There's God. And that's where we put our hope. That's where we look. Let's go to him right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have invited us to look to you. Thank you that you've won already. Thank you that that great it is finished on the cross made us so we can be right with you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Father, that uh, our hope is not in man, not in the intrigues. Our fear is not against what man can pull, but we fear you. We love you, and we thank you that your, your loving kindness endures forever. Thank you for the future of the hope. Thank you that you're coming back. Come quickly, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.